Hello and welcome to this special episode of Foodlands from Prophets, Wizards and the Quest to Value Nature. Believe it or not, our quest is coming to a close. This is our final special. We have episode 9 coming up in April and we have an episode 10 exploring what we can do about all this in our own lives. And we'll let you know when that's released. But this episode marks our last special as well as our last weekly episode. We went deeper into how agroecological and conservation priorities can align with those of farmers and food systems during this transition towards a more sustainable, life-supporting food system. And in the special before that one, we further investigated the role of the data revolution and technology in this transition, for better and for worse. But in this episode, we're zooming back out again to look at the policy situation in the global north. And if any particular area of discussion this week catches your interest, don't forget to check whether we've already done a complete episode on it. And if you're short on time, look out for that Rewind episode coming up that will summarise the quest we've been on with highlights from the series as well as new content. Today, Alexandra is joined by two food system policy experts, Tristan Quinn Thibodeau and Alberto Guerra, to talk over some of the terminology and policy priorities involved in the global response to the environmental crises we've been considering from biodiversity loss and ecological disruption to global heating. Tristan and Alberta are both from ActionAid, an international network seeking to build a more just, equitable and sustainable world. We're hugely grateful to them for making time to join the podcast near Baltimore, USA and Rome, Italy. To start with, the discussion focuses on COP26 and its legacy. If you're looking for a quick summary of some of the hits and misses of that COP, we think you'll enjoy this episode. But quite quickly, it expands beyond that to actually touch on almost all of the areas we've looked at so far in this series. Tristan and Alberta have a particular perspective on the profit wizard spectrum that many listeners will agree with and many won't. But whatever your view, we know you'll find their joined up thinking invaluable in getting an overview of current policy priorities. And in the interest of jargon busting, another way of saying that is getting an overview of exactly how we're tackling producing food sustainably to support life on Earth, including ourselves. Good morning and good afternoon to you, Tristan, and to you, Alberta. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to have you um, from across the Atlantic on both sides. And we traditionally begin this podcast by asking our guests to briefly introduce themselves to tell us what they do, but also tell us why they do what they do. Tristan, do you want to get us started? Sure, yeah. Thank you so much, um, Alexandra, for inviting us to this, this podcast. Uh, my name is Tristan Quinn Thibodeau, and I am the national campaigner at ActionAid USA, which is based in Washington, D.C., and is part of uh, ActionAid International, which is a uh, international human rights and international development um, NGO in over 50 countries, I think. And um, what I do is I build coalitions for grassroots power to advance policies to support um, the right to food and the right to land, and uh, also to counter what we call false solutions to the uh, climate crisis in the food and agriculture sector. And, and for us at ActionAid USA, and for me in particular, that work um, really began and has centered around the biofuel boom of about 15 years ago. And now we're, uh, we're seeing that 
many of the lessons we hoped folks would learn from that um, that policy and program are not being learned as you move forward. Um, and why do I do this work? Well, I think it's because the the community I grew up in in southern Maine, which is in the the northeastern U.S., um, was a community that valued local farming had um, had a lot of small farms, um, protected small farms from development, and uh, it you know it was a really great life. And then as as I've explored more parts of the world, I realize. Um, that's still the majority, the, the way that the majority of the people around the world get their food, but it's disappearing. It's being displaced by large factory farms, large industrial farms. And um, I think we have to preserve that. And also, I think there's really no more important work today than uh, trying to figure out and repair the relationship between humans and the natural world. And our agricultural systems are really what defines that relation. Thank you so much, Tristan. I really hope we're going to get a chance to, to dive into that, that deeper philosophical dimension. Alberta Guerra, you are talking to us from the countryside nearby Rome. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do and why you do it? Yes, for sure. And thank you for inviting us uh, uh, in this um, in this podcast. So uh, starting with my name. Yes, my name is Alberta Guerra. I work as a senior policy analyst uh, at ActionAid USA together with Tristan. And my work is around um, doing global advocacy on global food policies to uh, basically contribute to increase quantity and quality of public investments in agriculture with a particular focus on women, rural farmers, agroecology, right to food and food sovereignty. Uh, as you were rightly saying, I mean, I come from uh, from Rome, but I uh, live in the countryside now in a little farm. And uh, but I continue, of course, to uh, be attached to Rome and to go there for meetings. Also, because my part of my work is also to uh, act as a liaison between the ActionAid International Federation and the UN Rome Food Agencies, uh, together with the Committee on World Food Security. Um, so at the same time, I also sit uh, at the Global Agriculture Food Security Program, which is uh, hosted in Washington. Um, steering committee as a CSO representative. So speaking from the countryside, from a small farm, uh, I really feel um, the rights of people that produce most of the food that we eat as central in my work. So my work is mostly about how to put the rights of these people at the center of global food policies. Uh, in addition to that, I think that I do this work because I, I, I believe that we are all part of the same ecosystem and, and nature, and nature is not something that uh, is separate from us. Uh, during my, I guess, 15 years of working with uh, indigenous people, uh, community-based organizations, particularly in developing countries, I've seen uh, most of them as most food producers, indigenous peoples, women, farmers, getting their livelihoods from farming, uh, while protecting the environment. Uh, and I strongly believe that this is the model that we have to preserve in the north and in the south. Um, so I think that defending the rights of these people is absolutely paramount for my for my work. And I think that it's absolutely important to live in a planet where natural resources are protected, rural areas are vibrant, consumers can access healthy diets, and producers can live from their farming. 
Thank you so much, Alberta. We reached out to the both of you um, because you wrote this article, a blog post, reacting to a project launched by the Biden administration at the COP, which is called Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate. Um, and you wrote a reaction um, to this project that has been quite poorly mediatized. And because at Profits and Wizards, we're talking about the biodiversity crisis in the European space, Um, and we're linking it directly to food systems and we're talking about climate in relation to food systems and because we really wanted to talk about what happened at the COP in relation to food systems we thought it would be worthwhile to really shed light on this Biden administration project and what it means but just to zoom out a little bit before we dive into the Aim for Climate initiative I would just like to know what you guys felt coming out of the COP26. I was wondering whether you had um, hopes, fears, and anger coming out of it when you consider what happened during COP26. Yeah, well, I can. Yeah, I can start. Um, I think. Well, just to say, you know, Alberta and I were not at the COP, but we were following it from afar, and we did have colleagues from ActionAid that were there. And from what we can tell, you know, COP26 was a failure in many ways. It did not deliver on a real path to 1.5 degrees uh, warming, despite what the slogan of keep 1.5 alive, despite what that slogan says. Um, it also failed to deliver a financing mechanism for the rich countries to fund the development of poor countries without you know, using fossil fuels. And it failed to deliver any kind of financial support for loss and damage uh, you know, for the people, for the countries um, suffering the first impacts of the climate crisis, but you know, who by and large are the people who had really nothing to do with creating the crisis. And so on those three fronts or those three issues, the COP26 was a failure. Um, and I think, you know, coming from the United States, so I'm calling from Baltimore, Maryland, which is just outside of Washington, D.C., the U.S. government was a ma major obstacle on all of those issues. Um, I think, though, at the same time, there is a lot of hope coming out from, from the COP26, not because of government action, but because of the action of people inside and outside the COP and a growing uh, realization that this is an urgent, urgent issue. Uh, big transformation is needed. And also, you're, we're not going to get climate action without climate justice, that there needs to be fairness and equity for the people suffering worst and first and who had nothing to do with creating the crisis. And the people, the countries who did create the crisis, you know, coming from the United States, coming from Europe, uh, historically are economic development has created the crisis, we're going to have to do more. We have to do our fair share. So I think it's a complicated mixed bag coming out of COP26, but certainly uh, the fight is not over. Mm, what you're saying is really reminiscent of what I heard um, some people from the Climate Action Network say that they were they left wondering whether they should be celebrating the breadcrumbs or shouting for more, shouting for more action. Um, This, yeah, we really get this general sense, but somehow when we think about the COP26 and we think about climate action, we don't necessarily think food systems. Alberta, what kind of place did sustainable food systems hold within the COP? Uh, well, we can start by locating the COP26 right after the UN Food Systems Summit that took place uh, in September. Um, and uh, uh, I mean, just to uh, just to let you know that ActionAid was part of the 
broader coalition boycotting the summit because of the several problems coming up with the structure and the way it was defined. But I think that one of the positive things, the only positive things maybe of the UN Food System Summit was that it was able to shed light on the need to transform the food system, having climate concern in mind. So locating the COP26 after the UN Food System Summit means that we had big expectations that also the COP uh, addressed the issue of how to transform the current food system, which is no longer sustainable, in order to um, to meet and to contribute to climate change adaptation and mitigation. But this didn't happen, and it, it's really it's really strange that this didn't happen if, if you consider that the agricultural sector is responsible for at least uh, one third of global greenhouse gas emission, and at the same time it is heavily affected by climate change impacts. So the fact that agriculture and food system transformation didn't feature so prominently in the COP26 is something that uh, we really need to be aware of and uh, and consider uh, because uh, it's, it's, it's really a shortfall of the COP26 to not have addressed issues like mm. livestock sector, factory farming, and large-scale industrial agriculture, which again are the major responsible of the uh, green, green, green gas emissions that we are seeing today. Yeah, as you say, Alberta, it's strange. I mean, farming and food systems is a topic that was, at the end of the day, maybe we can say relatively absent from the COP26 discussions. You know, we noticed that during the two weeks of the conference, whole days were allocated to themes like finance, energy and transport, maybe without surprise, but there was no dedicated day for agriculture and food systems. Um, farming did fall under one of the days, um, and that was Nature Day on the Saturday. Um, where there was a lot of talk about protecting forests. Um, and so this kind of theme at the nexus between deforestation and industrial agriculture, maybe a little bit about cutting meat consumption, food waste, and so on. But how can we understand this mystery? How on the back of the UN Food Summit um, would there be not a whole day dedicated to farming? Uh, that's a really good question. There might be several reasons. From my perspective, uh, what I can see is that there is a lot of resistance to seriously address the contribution of the agricultural sector to climate change. Even if we have uh, now a lot of evidence, and UN uh, official research that speak to that and call for radical change. I think that one, uh, probably one aspect is the big resistance from big corporations that have vested interest in protecting the current model as they control between 60-70% of the global seed, pesticides and fertilized markets. And of course, I mean, uh, addressing the transformation uh, that we need will need to completely uh, change the system uh, and they will lose their profit, of course. But I think that the, some resistance comes, of course, also from uh, big exporter countries because they don't want to reform their intensive production system, which is at the basis of their economy. Uh, I probably would add that there is a lot, there is also a tendency uh, to fragment the issues. So uh, even if the nexus between climate and food for us is, is clear, um, this is not, a, not yet very clear to many. And uh, even in the UN, you have different spaces, different domains where food uh, and climate are respectively addressed. 
but there is still a lot of problems in making this nexus and try to address everything as interconnected. Uh, all the crises are connected, so addressing the root causes of all the cri multiple crises that we are going through. So I think that also the um, uh, the work in silos might be another explanation of why that uh, was not possible to address these issues so seriously in COP. Mm, yet, Alberta, as you say, food systems, especially when we include processing, packaging and transports, are responsible for at least one third of global green, greenhouse gas emissions. Um, Tristan, do you want to walk us through some of the key ways that we can understand this impact of our agri-food systems on the climate? Sure. Yeah, I can. And I also wanted to go back to that last question because I think uh, mm. I think a lot about this issue of how to transition the agricultural system uh, to be, you know, zero carbon, and why it's different than um, transitioning the energy system. And I think it's because we, when we have when we talk about energy, you know, getting off of fossil fuels, getting onto renewable energy sources, it's just input substitution. You have to change the infrastructure uh, to accommodate the different. Uh, energy input, but it's just input substitution. But when we're talking about transitioning agriculture, it's much different. It's a, it's an, a complete reorientation of the way we uh, relate to nature, which is how, what I said at the beginning of this interview. And I think one thing that is that I forgot to mention that is important about COP26 was that agroecology was mentioned or included in the uh, official negotiating text for the first time at a COP. Granted, it's in brackets, which means that it's uh, not officially in the document. It's it's just a note that it's being discussed. But that is really substantial because agroecology is a complete paradigm shift away from the uh, industrial ag uh, extractive uh, globalized model. And I think the introduction of agroecology and the support of many governments for it um, could really create a different dynamic in COPs coming, uh, future COPs. But in terms of the impact of our uh, industrialized food system on the climate, I think, you know, I've seen estimates, and estimates vary, but um, I've seen some estimates that, you know, half of all emissions come from the food system, and that's when you count, you know, all emissions from supermarkets, all emissions from uh, trucking related to food transport and all kinds of other things. Um, so I think uh, it, that that doesn't usually, that's not the usual way in which greenhouse gas emissions are tracked, but I think that is important to note that this sector, this uh, aspect of our lives and of our economy is super important. And I think the two big ways in which the industrial ag sector contributes to climate change is one through um, deforestation and land use change related to expansion of um, agribusiness production. Uh, because, you know, you cut down uh, trees and, and destroy ecosystems, you not only lose a carbon sink, but you release a lot of carbon, and then you're not doing some kind of ecological farming on top of it. You're doing a, um, uh, a monocrop usually, which uses chemicals and um, you know, doesn't really build soil health and all kinds of other things. And then the other major impact is uh, factory-farmed meat and livestock production. And I think uh, specifically with factory farming uh, for livestock production, you know, an analysis from the organization's grain and the Institute for Agricultural and Trade Policy from a few years ago found that the largest meat corporations produce um, as much greenhouse gases, gas emissions as some of the major fossil fuel companies, and that um, 
the top 20 meat and dairy companies produce more greenhouse gas emissions than Germany, Canada, Australia, the UK, and France combined. So, and I think other analysis has said that even if we were able to, say, phase out fossil fuels rapidly, like within the next, you know, within the decade or something, um, uh, if we don't handle emissions from the food system or from the food sector, we're still going to cross that 1.5 degree threshold. So it's absolutely imperative that we, we deal with this issue. Before I ask Alberta if she wants to add anything to that in our way of understanding the nexus between climate and our agri-food systems, um, I'm curious, Tristan, where did agroecology come into the COP text? So from what I understand, you know, the at the COP there are the official negotiations, but then there are also these workshops uh, where I believe governments, but also you know civil society organizations can discuss the issues. And they're, they're officially part of the negotiations. I don't think they're like side events, but um, that is where agroecology first was sort of introduced to the COP. And then I'm not sure how it entered into the negotiating text. Uh, I know that one of the sort of um, contradictions, I suppose, is that I believe it was India that, I mean, many countries opposed agroecology in particular. I mean, the United States is very opposed to agroecology in other UN spaces, but um, in particular, India objected to it being formally included in the text, um, even though there's a very strong movement for agroecology in India, they call it zero budget natural farming. So it's um, something that's interesting because there could be a lot of support for agroecology from that country of uh, over a billion people. So um, that is, I mean, that's part of the dynamic at the COP and uh, uh, something I think that, that it's a dynamic we need to pay attention to moving forward. Thank you, Tristan. And I just wanted to give you a chance, Alberta, to add anything um, that you may want to in relation to this kind of energy intensive um, agri-food system. How can we better understand the, the consequences of the food that we're producing this way? Uh, yeah, uh, Tristan gave a really exhaustive overview of the connection between some um, agricultural practices uh, and climate change, um, uh, putting the, the attention on deforestation and livestock factory farming. I would just like to add that uh, we can't ignore the massive use of pesticides and fertilizers so that all this uh, large-scale intensive agricultural production model requires. So, of course, I mean, this is another major uh, contribution to uh, to green greenhouse uh, emissions and uh, um, and of course, I mean, one of the, the strongest call for uh, food movements, civil society engaged in the food space is exactly to uh, not optimize, uh, neither uh, maximize the use of these pesticides and fertilizers, but just to agree on a common framework to completely eliminate uh, the use of these um, agrochemicals uh, in agriculture. Uh, they, of course, they are responsible for for emissions because they require they are very energy intensive in 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 the production they require the burning of fossil fuels but they also are responsible for biodiversity loss impoverishment of the soil with its water retention capacity so really really um, uh, one of the structural changes that we need to do in the agricultural sector so we can't ignore the contribution of uh, the massive use of pesticides and fertil fertilizers uh, to greenhouse gas emissions, if we look uh, at the fact that um, to prepare them, 
uh, there is a lot, uh, I mean, there is requested a lot of burning of fossil fuels, but also uh, the use of pesticides and fertilizers are responsible for biodiversity loss, impoverishment of the soil, and its water retention capacity. So exacerbating basically the effect uh, on climate. So this, this is really something that uh, we really need to change and uh, phase out completely. Mm. So just before we move on to um, speak more in depth about the U.S.'s aim for climate pledge, maybe we can talk about the kinds of pledges and announcements and outcome related to food systems. Sure. Um, yeah. So the agriculture agriculture Innova innovation mission for climate was an initiative that was, I guess, launched by the United States government. Uh, and the United Arab Emirates, and it was a pledge for, I think, $4 billion for research into innovation to help food systems uh, adapt to the climate crisis and to uh, uh, reduce emissions in the food and agriculture uh, sector, and with a heavy emphasis on um, technology, so developing new technologies to um, allow the industrial food system to emit less. And I think there's a strong emphasis on technologies like uh, data and AI and other kinds of mechanization, artificial intelligence. They're, they're very expensive and they're really only applicable to large scale capital intensive food systems, uh, whereas the majority of the world is still um, you know, majority of the world's farmers are, are small scale, um, have very little money, and need low cost innovations, um, not the kinds that are coming from this AIM for for climate initiative. I think if you go to the website, it's instructive what that vision looks like. There's a big field, a big monoculture field with a large irrigation rig um, that's pretty standard but that shows you know that the industrial monocrop model is at the center of what uh, what they want to maintain but in addition to that there are other photos of a massive uh, warehouse sized greenhouse with uh, very you can see there's precision irrigation there are robots going up and down the uh, the rows picking and tending to the crops and then further down on their website there's another image of a, a farmer but it looks like a you know professional manager with an ipad or with some tablet you know managing or looking at data controlling a drone it's uh this ai artificial intelligence uh big data robotic um climate controlled um food production model that they are interested in and and that this they're um that is their vision, and it is, you know, as some people have said, farming without farmers. Um, it is agriculture completely disconnected from nature, in in my view, um, and I think that it is a vision that may be very uh, popular, maybe very. Um, uh, maybe a desired vision for, for people living in cities, for people who have money living in cities, but for people living in the countryside, it's, um, it's, a, it's a dead end or it's a, it's a sign that their livelihoods, their, their ways of living are, are coming to an end. Uh, there's, there's not really any, you know, there's no people in these pictures. Um, and so I don't know how people are going to live in the countryside anymore. And at a time when we need to be 
getting back to the countryside in order to heal this division and all the extraction we've done to the natural world. I, I just don't understand this vision, to be honest with you. Mm, Alberta, before we really dive further deep into this kind of proposal of a new agricultural industrial system, um, do you want to tell us if anything else happened in relation to forests and land use or transition to sustainable foods and agriculture? First, let me start with a very personal impression. When uh, we, we have we we had actionate colleagues uh, at the COP, as you know, but I of course I mean all those not being there used to follow through media or through the website what is going on. So my uh, initial um, reflection is that when I looked for the final outcome of the COP, I, I got lost uh, because there were plenty of announcements and declarations, uh, even related to to, to food, um, that it was dif even really difficult to scrutinize all of them in detail, even for those that were at the COP and so uh, got the announcement um, really uh, in real time. So, um, as I was saying, there are plenty of announcements and declarations. So when it comes to, um, to land, uh, in particular to land uh, and forests, there were uh, declarations that were made by uh, leaders. So there is the Glasgow Leader Declaration of Forest and Land Use. Uh, there was a COP20C IPLC Forest Tenure Joint Donor Statement. There was another uh, Glasgow Innovation Breakthrough in agriculture, so I can I can mention all of them. There are around uh, five or six, uh, including the aim for climate. Um, but what struck me more is that uh, uh, all of these announcements and declarations uh, share some common uh, elements that, for me, are very worrying. So first, uh, they are not at all bonding. Uh, they are very general declaration, don't have time about work plans, concrete activities. And of course, I mean, the, uh, one of the things that we worth noticing is that they are not um, negotiated outcome. Um, so this means that they lack completely any kind of accountability mechanism. Uh, they are just general declaration without serious commitments. Uh, by governments, uh, many times accompanied also by corporate sector uh, joining these initiatives, but uh, nothing more than uh, than wars. Another element that um, um, I mean that uh, sucked my attention was the the concept on nature that they used to uh, to use. I mean, nature not really as a public good per se, but mostly as a mean to achieve the mitigation targets uh, that um, they claim to achieve, uh, basically working as a carbon sink. This is particularly for land and forest. And this has, uh, I mean, really, really serious concern. Uh, first, because uh, it doesn't address the root causes of emissions, uh, but just to use, uh, I mean, the offset as a mechanism to uh, to try to, to address and to achieve mitigation target. Uh, second element is that considering the uh, mostly land and forest as a carbon sink, uh, they will not look and pay attention to the rights of the people living on that land, the indigenous peoples, 
grassroots communities. What about them? I mean, if the if land has to be used as a carbon sink, but what about the rights of the people that live on that land? Another element, um, uh, again, if, if we look particularly at the declaration uh, on land use and forest, is that uh, it's not even realistic what they plan to do because the land required to offset all the emissions um, it's, it's it's simply the planet it's not enough the planet doesn't have so much land uh to achieve this goal um and maybe the last element that i would like to uh to highlight is that um this is something that we also addressed in other spaces, particularly in the climate war fuel security in the FAO. I mean, what the definition of forest? Uh, forest, I mean, the definition of forest is very uh, broad and ended up in including also soy and oil palm plantations or, or tree plantations. And again, uh, this is not exactly the concept of forest that we draw from indigenous peoples and communities living in that forest. Yeah, I think. Um... Uh, in general, the I think what the point that Alberta made that it was very hard to figure out what was the actual outcome of the COP when we saw this plethora of pledges announced. And in our view, um, the all of these pledges from governments, from corporations that were outside of the official COP process, or um, or at least you know tangential to it. Um, they were distractions from the fact that real the, the actual policies, the actual language being negotiated was far less than what we need. They were distractions and they also focused on this concept of net zero by 2050, which may sound good. I mean, that is what the IPCC recommended, said that we need to hit net zero by 2050, but they also said we need to essentially cut emissions, global emissions in half in you know almost eight years now. Uh, on the way to net zero by 2050. But what many of these pledges are about, these net zero pledges, they're not really about the, the second part, about cutting emissions in half in eight years. They're about offsetting emissions, offsetting all emissions by 2050. And as Alberta pointed out, there is just not enough. Uh, a lot of the, the offset plans rely on land, which is where this uh, you know, agriculture and food system piece does come into the COP. It was not named explicitly, but with all the offset, um, uh, all the offsets involved in many of these pledges, that's where the land sector was and our land use issues. There's just not enough land for uh, for any of these, for, for all the offset pledges. And uh, the, a lot of people maybe have not done the math, but it's just not going to work. Yeah, I saw you say something like, um uh, Shell's net zero plan would require land uh, three times the size of the Netherlands. I found that so striking. Where are they going to be uh, buying land in order to put these plans into action? And when they talk about offsetting strategy, you know, and, and you also mentioned monoculture plantation of trees, um, Alberta, what do these look like in practice? What does it mean to use land to offset? Very shortly, this means that you need to uh, um, use the, the land for this purpose, but uh, this would simply uh, increase the pressure over land and uh, using as an offset and putting this into the 
um, uh, carbon market mechanism, for example, this means also increased financialization of land resources. And again, this would uh, harm communities and indigenous peoples living on that land and uh, ignore the capacity of these people to, uh, to preserve their natural resources. So it's really dangerous because what we see is that uh, all of this will simply increase the rush for land. So will lead to increased grabbing of land and natural resources, human rights violations, especially for those most affected and the people and communities that live on that land. Mm. I want to I want to move on to another quite striking pledge just because of its number, 30%. Apparently, um, the EU, the US and other countries agreed to reduce global methane emissions by 30%. And when we talk about the agricultural sector, we immediately think about cows and manure when we think about methane, right? So I was wondering whether there was a a link between this pledge to reduce global methane emissions and anything reducing relating to reducing meat production or eating less meat. Tristan, do you have an idea of this? Yeah, well, this pledge was a pledge between the, the US, the EU, and I think many other countries joined. Um, and I can't speak exactly to what the EU, um, what they're going to do to implement this pledge. <clears throat> Excuse me. But unfortunately, the Biden administration they, um, while they did announce new regulations on uh, fossil fuel extraction, which also uh, releases methane, um, as well as a couple other um, uh, regulations on, I think, the energy sector, um, they only asked for voluntary commitments to climate smart agriculture uh, as a way of reducing methane from the food system. And as we highlighted at the sort of the top of this interview, it's the factory farm uh, livestock production model, which is uh, manure, like you mentioned, um, which produces the methane that's driving the climate crisis. And methane, you know, as, as you probably know, is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Uh, it just, it lasts in the, it stays in the atmosphere uh, for a shorter period of time, but it actually has a stronger greenhouse gas, uh, greenhouse effect. And so it's very troubling that um, the Biden administration is not taking a tougher line on factory farming. But you have to understand that the Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack, who serves in the Biden administration and also served in the Obama administration, um, spent the time between those two administrations as the top lobbyist for the dairy industry, which is uh, in the United States, which is, uh, you know, relies on this factory farm model. So uh, I, I don't. I think that's a reflection of the fact that the agribusiness sector has. Uh, I don't want to say they're dictating food and agriculture policy in the U.S., but they have a strong grasp on it, and um, I think it's a it's a problem. And so I think we need to push more on this uh, methane pledge and, and ensure that factory farming is included in that. Now I got to say it's very uh, difficult. This issue is very difficult because many farmers don't want to be hurt economically uh, by the transition to, uh, you know, different kind of uh, livestock production. I mean, they, the the prices they get paid for their, for their product is extremely low. And until we change that whole economic model and ensure that farmers and, and workers in the food system have a just transition to a more sustainable, more ecological model, uh, more fair, more just model, 
um, we're going to get a lot of resistance. So it's a very uh, difficult sort of political project we have to undertake, but that's that's where it has to be. Yes, very very quickly, just a small addition that uh, unfortunately what we see is also that the debate around the livestock sector is really bad shaped and leads to many misunderstandings and wrong conclusions and ended up in just considering, okay, are we going to uh, reduce our meat consumption? So uh, I think that uh, this debate has to be located in the right context uh, and uh, calling for reduction of meat consumption must, be, uh, must consider also that we have overproduction, overconsumption of meat and uh, um, a lot of consequences in terms of health, for example, increased malnutrition, obesity, not communicable disease. And so it's not just a cut in meat consumption, um, but it really has to be located into the right context to be adequately addressed. And at the same time, I mean, calling for better meat production uh, means dismantling the, uh, the, the calf or, or similar concentrated animal feeding operations um, but replacing them with uh, diversified, localized agro-pastoral systems that are all at the core of agroecological system. And this is to protect the welfare of animals, but also the quality of the meat we eat and the health of the people. Um, so I think the debate should be really framed in a different way, uh, also to raise much more awareness among consumers um, uh, that um, that might appear worried to reduce their meat consumption, but they might, uh, uh, let's say, overlook the health implication of their choices. This new glorious approach to agriculture as a nature-based solution gives a lot of people some hope. Um, Alberta or Tristan, whichever of you wants to begin, do you think it's helpful, helpful to think of agriculture as a nature-based solution? And then also, um, why do you think it's a popular vision and for whom? It's important to yeah address this term nature-based solution because it was all over COP26 and it's all over, um, it's mentioned many times in, in plans to address uh, the climate crisis. And when the term nature-based solutions was first introduced. I think we were uh, hopeful that it could be a concept that could advance sustainable agriculture or more ecological agriculture. But what we've seen is that the term is now just synonymous with carbon offsetting. And in that regard, it's a problematic term. Uh, and so, no, I don't think I would see, or I don't wouldn't want to describe agriculture as a nature-based solution. Uh, certainly, there are attempts now to make agricultural production a source of carbon credits and to try to sequester carbon in agricultural soils. This is a big effort underway, especially in the United States, but there are very serious concerns with that plan because Carbon, certainly carbon can be sequestered in land and we should certainly be farming and taking care of our land in a way to build up healthy soils and ensure carbon is, is stored in them. However, if we are trying to be serious about stopping this climate crisis and the worst impacts, we have to get all the, we have to pr pr uh, stop carbon from entering the atmosphere and then take it out for good. And if you just sequester it in soils, it can be released very easily if you just plow up the land, if there is any kind of uh, natural disaster that happens to, to uh, the land. So it's not secure or stable. And then also they're not, 
most of these proposals do not uh, encompass the kind of uh, paradigm shift of agricultural systems that we would like to see of you know real agroecological production. It's still the industrial model, but with a few tweaks here and there. Um, and so I think, yes, like as, I, as I said, it is popular with people living in cities, uh, people who have grown accustomed to technology, uh, to smartphones and tablets and, and these kinds of things and to apps and, you know, Uber and Lyft and and these kinds of things. It's it's like yes, it's magic. We can have food grown in a in a warehouse and it is with no environmental negative impacts because it's totally controlled and robots can do it and, and isn't that that wonderful? But of course, yeah, farmers, people living in rural areas, <clears throat> they don't want this vision and it would be a real disaster, I think, economically and politically. <clears throat> if you look at the you know the the maps of uh, the political maps, you know, we're, we haven't talked about this, but in terms of this conversation, but we're also in the middle of a political crisis and it's frankly between people living in cities and people living in the countryside. And I think the extractive industrial model of food production is at the heart of this massive political crisis we're in because people living in rural areas in the countryside see their entire ways, and I'm talking particularly about the global north here, um, see their way ways of living um, disappearing. And there's certainly many other factors which we don't need to, we don't have time to go into, but if we don't address, if we, if we, if we continue on this path of turning rural areas into sacrifice zones, for example, where it's just about extraction and production and making those areas unlivable. And I mean, in the United States, um, rural towns have been completely decimated over the last 30 years. I mean, just boarded up street storefronts, you know, just whole towns dying. There's nobody living there anymore. Schools closing, everything closing. So there's no small business left. It's, and it's, it's this, um, creates this deep, deep, deep sense of pessimism. And that is a big problem. And so this vision may be popular with, you know, middle class, professional people living in cities, young people perhaps, but it has a huge social, political, and economic cost that we cannot sustain. Alberta, do you want to keep opening up on this question of why are the questions of the future of agriculture so inextricably entangled with questions of social and climate justice? Yes, if I if I may add something to what Tristan said on natural based solutions would be great uh, before going to the to the specific point. Yes, uh, because Go I for think it. yeah, thank you because I think that nature based solutions are are going to shape the the narrative uh, for the next decade on how to address climate change through nature and through agriculture. So I think that it's really relevant to understand very clearly what are the implications. Uh, so just to add to what uh, Tristan said before, I mean, uh, let's start by saying that natural-based solutions are really, it's a really vague definition. I mean, we're not clear about what uh, it exactly entails because it doesn't give a very clear definition. So we risk to have a range of 
uh, nature-linked uh, uh, practices that might be considered as nature-based solutions, uh, but without qualifying uh, what is really based on nature, on ecological principle like agroecology practices and other practices which are not and then harmful, even harmful for the environment. So the definition is very vague. Uh, the concern, the other concern I see is that, uh, as I said before, they look at nature as instrumental to offset carbon emissions and not as and not as a public good that we have to preserve and protect. And of course, I mean, if nature becomes instrumental to achieve this net zero target, will enter into a market-based mechanism, which is also the carbon market. <clears throat> that will lead to increased commercialization and financialization of nature, which is, again, very worrying. Uh, I think that another aspect that I would like to stress is that uh, nature-based solutions, I think, is very attractive for particularly corporate sector because allow them to greenwash and, and present themselves as doing something good for the environment, but basically without changing anything in their way um, of uh, production or <clears throat> or doing or they're doing their business. Uh, so again, I mean, it's a way to simply uh, present something in a different way, but without changing uh, and making structural reforms. And lastly, I think that uh, again, uh, this kind of solutions disconnect nature from the people uh, who live uh, who live in nature and uh, completely disregard the equity and the governance dimensions, uh, which are which must be at the core of any uh, kind of transformation and, and real change that we want to bring about. Usually, when the uh, when they refer to, uh, to I mean, they, they refer to innovations. So we are not talking about the community-based <laughs> agroecology innovations developed by every day by uh, small-scale food producers. What they they refer to is the kind of innovations which are really um, sophisticated, high-tech solutions. And there are, of course, there are many. There are many uh, of them that range from the use of drones, precision agriculture culture, uh, development of very sophisticated apps that, uh, for example, help forecast weather conditions or um, share market information under the, um, uh, let's say, under the um, objective to connect uh, consumers and the big retailers, for example. Um, all of these innovations, uh, I mean, are are, are very attractive for, for many uh, because apparently they they will resolve the problems, uh, help the world keep the same habits in consumption without sacrificing anything, um, keep safe our, uh, let's say, blind trust into, into progress. And it looks like the, um, the, 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 the golden solutions for all the problems that we are facing. Unfortunately, this is not the reality. This is not the reality and we always have to question ourselves when it comes to technology innovations who control that who will benefit from that and who can access that because there are huge social implications that must be uh, brought into the discussion now all these technologies are in the hands of a handful of powerful corporations that develop them and are able to use and control them 
um, usually very often all these uh, technology solutions are very, very expensive. So uh, too much expensive for the poor. And uh, of course, I mean, are not accessible to the millions of small scale food producers across the world. So this means that uh, all of these farmers will be simply left out. And what will happen is that the um, uh, the conversation between uh, developed countries and developing countries around transfer of knowledge, um, recurring to these high tech solutions, will end up replicating a really colonialist model of knowledge transfer with the northern countries <coughs> or the big corporate sectors um, selling this technology to the poorest with all the, again, all the consequences that we can also uh, imagine in terms of uh, falling into, again, into a, a dependency trap. So what do we have to ask of ourselves is what, what, what about the rights of the indigenous people, women communities that farm their land that will be simply taken off their land? Mm. Yeah, totally. And I think that it's, and that's exactly the challenge that this podcast is dealing with is that there's a there's a higher and higher level of recognition of the urgency of fam- facing the the climate crisis and the 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 biodiversity crisis um but these are framed as scientific problems and so it gives to the solution this kind of sliding sense of neutrality um and the different actors can come from vastly different political and economic agendas Maybe sometimes uh, we manage to bring the conversation down from uh, political cleavages when we talk simply about some of the possible climate costs. Just in pure energy terms, what does it mean to set up robotized agriculture and vertical farms and so on? Sure, yeah. So it's a great question. And I think precision agriculture has gotten a lot of attention. And from my understanding, it's about using, um, you know, more advanced machinery and sensors and data to more um, efficiently uh, apply chemicals to industrial food systems or industrial agriculture um, with the idea that you reduce the kinds of chemicals per acre that you you have to use. However, I don't know that they actually look at total amount of agrochemical use. For example, if you might... reduce your per acre use, but if you're expanding the number of acres you're using chemicals on, you may actually be increasing the amount of, of agrochemical that you're applying. So, I mean, I don't think that the the chemical companies, agrochemical companies, they're all in support of precision agriculture. So presumably they're at least assuming that uh, they will maintain their current sales and maybe they're going to increase their current sales. So I think if we're concerned about agrochemicals as a as a source of carbon emissions uh, from the food and agriculture sector, you know, precision agriculture is something that I don't think is a real solution uh, because we're looking at, yeah, the per unit um, use of the chemical, not the total use of the chemical. And as Alberta mentioned at the beginning, we can phase out the complete use of these chemicals. We have agroecological systems and research. I mean, an agroecological research is completely underfunded. You know, this is sort of the the irony, or maybe not the irony, but the the disappointment of something like AIM for Climate, Agricultural Innovation Mission for Climate. $4 billion in agroecological research, which 
is actually beneficial for the majority of the people or could be used by the majority of people on Earth, that's really where that money would be would be amazing to go, not into more AI. I mean, the tech industry has plenty of money already uh, to do that kind of, and agribusiness companies have plenty of money already to do that research if they want. Um, <clears throat> but I think, um, so we have to look at that in terms of precision agriculture. I'm not sure that it's actually going to reduce overall emissions. Um, and I did want to go back to this other point because I'm not quite satisfied with my answer about you know this vision, um, this tech vision for agriculture and and how popular it is. I, I think one big factor is that many people you know are living in cities in particular are disconnected from rural areas, and even people living in rural areas are disconnected from food production, especially in the global north, because so few people do it now as farms have gotten bigger and bigger, as the market's gotten more and more concentrated. Uh, it's impossible in the United States. It's very hard to make a living as a farmer unless, you know, and particularly in, you know, the big farming areas, unless you're farming thousands of acres. And I know it's the same in, in Europe as well. And so people don't really know what happens on farms, uh, especially when it comes to meat, eggs, dairy, that kind of uh, production and even in the united states there are states have passed laws forbidding people from taking photos or videos of factory farms so the fact is people don't even understand um, what is happening with their food and they don't have any connection to the people who are producing that food and i think so it, so if there are people that are supportive of this vision or think that uh, this vision is, is something we should aim for it's because they're not in relation with the people who are producing foods or with rural areas and i think the fact that we've got such at least in the united states have such um, still have such positive energy and support for things like farmers markets i mean most people want organic food if they can get it shows that there actually is a real desire for agroecological food systems even if people don't use that terminology Maybe I'm, I'm realizing we're going over time. Um, there's so much great content to talk about. Um, I am thinking of moving on to the subsidy system. And it was it was particularly resonant earlier, Alberta, when you were talking about basically um, financial visions of nature that are tied in to the nature-based solutions model. And we see these kinds of financial visions of the value add um, of basically regenerating ecosystems when it comes to uh, new forms of subsidies. A recent UN report concluded that almost 90% of the 540 billion dollars of global agricultural subsidies are given to farmers who actively destroy nature and fuel the climate crisis. And so, at least on the European scale, subsidies are one of the priorities um, of the elements of the agri-food sector to be reconsidered. And um, we're looking at new agro-environmental schemes that are looking to reward, quote-unquote, farmers for delivering public goods. That would be things like planting trees, uh, water retention, biodiversity benefits on their farm. And it's also completely explicit in the UK's new farming policy, Environmental Land Management, ELM. Um, what do you guys think about these new ways of thinking about agricultural incentive plans um, based on basically farmers as producers of biodiversity and producers of other natural benefits? Alberta, do you want to get us started? I can, I can start for sure. And I uh, started by saying that it's a really tricky question because, of course, I mean, uh, 
will, uh, I'm, I'm perfectly aware, we all are aware that uh, about the funding that you are mentioning, uh, that most of the current subsidies are going to practices that basically destroy the environment and the soil. So I think that uh, for sure it's, a, it's an important step uh, to recognize that and to uh, shift this funding towards more sustainable practices. Um, in, in terms of uh, using these subsidies to reward farmers for producing um, biodiversity, uh, uh, biodiversity and provide uh, we, we can call them ecosystem services. I mean, it's not it's not totally bad because it, it it might of course I mean incentivize good practices by farmers and help them to uh, uh, to foster and to uh, increase um, diversified more integrated uh, farming system uh, through uh, again I mean integrating agriculture with livestock and uh, uh, forestry, for example. So I think that we, of course, we can't be totally negative about that. Uh, but at the same time, so we also need to be uh, aware of some concern. Well, first is that um, my concern is that will this system will risk creating uh, increased pressure over farmers. Um, about uh, again, I mean, finding the solutions, uh, being the solutions, being offered the solutions to uh, uh, to to achieve uh, mitigation targets, and this again can replicate the top-down model uh, when farmers will be incentivized from the top to do something that is required at that moment in time. And uh, in this regard, uh, I think this approach many times risks to um, ignore what farmers really want and what. Farmers, particularly small-scale farmers, small-scale food producers from the south, uh, are asking for. And I continue to refer to that because I know that uh, um, the the problems, the challenges that the farmers face in the north and the south uh, uh, are uh, more and more similar. So I I, I can see now the uh, let's say the divergence between the challenges of the farmers in the north uh, compared to the farmers in the south it was like 20, 30 years ago. But at the same time, so we, we need always to be reminded that we have to look particularly the poorest, particularly the most vulnerable, particularly those producers that represent the majority of the small-scale farmers in the world and live in rural areas in south in, in the southern countries and represent at the same time as also those that are suffering most from hunger and from the impacts of climate change. So just to uh, be back to this, many of these farmers are uh, asking for policies and uh, support and uh, financial support as well to their uh, agroecological farming system, which are more local, which are not necessarily linked to the global market. Um, they just want to get remunerative prices from the market, so not be um, uh, monopolized or controlled by uh, neither corporate sector, neither uh, intermediaries, for example, particularly in the case of the southern countries. So I think that we can also call, uh, look back at what these uh, farmers, uh, most of them are organized, uh, are visible, uh, are visible entities that might have a dialogue with the respective governments, respective institutions, and we need to hear uh, what they want uh, to get a decent life for their farming. And, uh, and so when I speak 
speak to them, particularly those that I used to, to work with, with, who are really agroecological farmers. To be honest, I, I don't hear about them serving as um, providers of ecosystem services. I mean, they do, they do farm in a sustainable way because they find it more productive, because they find it more sustainable, because they, farm, they are finding more justice uh, in a way that they can control their production, they can control uh, their um, the, what they want to produce. I mean, that they struggle just to access the market they need. Um, so I think that, uh, of course, I mean, we are part of the global call to shift subsidies and incentives from the industrial agriculture model and redirect, sorry, redirect this um, uh, support towards agroecological diversified agri-food systems. But to be honest, I'm not entirely sure that the same kind uh, of solutions that those promoting this um, uh, this um, reward uh, mechanism uh, have in mind. Tristan, would you like to comment? Sure. Yeah, I think that this issue is really important. And coming from the United States, you know, the analysis from the National Family Farm Coalition is that subsidies are not the driver of the industrialized food system that we have, but are actually just there, at least in the, in the U.S. context, to keep farmers from going out of business, but that the actual policies we need to be looking at are the uh, free trade policies, which have uh, encouraged globalized agriculture and sort of a race to the bottom in farming and uh, overproduction, which is really what causes uh, food prices or the price of commodities to fall so low below the cost of production in the US and then the subsidies just sort of try to make the farmer whole but they're they're never quite enough. So certainly I agree with Alberta that if we could, you know, if we're going to keep that system it's better to condition those subsidy payments on certain environmental or certain, you know, certain sustainable practices. But really what we need is a is a we need to change the market and have the market and economic incentives pushing farmers to be to not overproduce and to be more conservation minded. So in the United States, you know, going back to the Great Depression uh, and the New Deal, you know, we, we, we haven't really talked about something like a, a Green New Deal or a, a global Green New Deal, but going back to the New Deal in the United States uh, to deal with the, the farm crisis, they implemented supply management policies, which, you know, sort of set a quota of how much would be produced and the idea was you don't produce more than be consumed because if you do that and farmers you know are not really coordinated and if you're doing agriculture um, you know you never know how much you're going to get in your field so you just have to plant as much as you can um, the you know a, a, a factory can reduce production if prices are are low to bring them back up but a farmer can't really do that you only get one chance one you know one time a year to produce and uh, you never know what the weather is going to be so you farmers are going to tend to overproduce and so they need um, government frankly to come in and help manage that issue because if they do overproduce the price crashes and then they go out of business they can't pay their debts so that's really what we i would like to see us return to this kind of um, more common sense approach to the issue because the, the 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 other aspect of the you know going back to aim for climate which we 
um, we were are critical of. The other issue, which we didn't really mention, is that it's still based in this productionist idea that we need to produce more uh, to end hunger and to ensure food security. But the fact is we produce you know, far and away way more food than anyone can eat on, on the planet. And, uh, and the majority of it is also going to the wealthy countries, the wealthiest countries. Food, the global food system is still oriented towards um, consumers in the global north. Um, but we don't, we don't actually, this overproduction issue is a huge problem. It's one of the, frankly, one of the drivers of the climate crisis, the ag systems uh, contributions to the climate crisis. And so if we don't address that issue, and I don't think that we're really addressing the root causes. And so subsidies are, you know, part of that or like a band-aid to that system, but we really need to address that overproduction issue and ensure that, you know, the the prices that farmers are receiving from the marketplace and the wages that they're able to receive and pay workers and things are actually fair and represent the true cost of production. And correlate to that, that means everyone, uh, every worker needs to be paid uh, a fair wage that actually covers their the true cost of um, of living, uh, living in a sustainable, ecological, fair, and equitable way. Mm, what a a perfect moment to 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 finish on. That's exactly what I want to kind of build on um the question that we generally ask our interviewees when we close is um what future of agriculture um are you dreaming of um and with all the kind of social structures that that involves um sometimes it's easier to to respond to that question just focusing on one given landscape maybe the one that's nearest to you or one given country as an example um Tristan, since you were just talking about something similar, do you want to build on that idea? What's what's a agri-food system utopia from where you're standing? Great question. I think, you know, living in uh, Baltimore, Maryland, I'm not sure if, if the audience of this podcast is familiar with Baltimore, but, you know, there's a lot of poverty and unemployment here. Um, it's a deindustrialized city, port, port city. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, land that could be developed. And so, I mean, I just, I'd love to see more farms, more urban farms, more uh, parts of the, the, you know, the, the suburban sprawl uh, protected. Uh, so we don't just have development on, on farmland, but uh, many more farms and many more young people and, and older people too, who see farming as a viable job and as a respectable job and as uh, a job you can earn like a decent living from and get respect because I think there are so many people who like to live with their hands or who like to work with their hands, uh, who want to do practical things and who love nature. And right now, because of the way the economy is structured and the way policy is oriented, going into farming is, for, as a young person is either impossible or incredibly difficult and lonely. Um, and that needs to change. And, you know, we've got We've got about 2 million farmers in the U.S., probably about 3, maybe 4 million migrant workers. All of those folks should have access to land uh, special through a, through a special program so that they can farm, so that every community should have a farm um, or many farms. Um, and we need, yeah, much more local. I'd love to see much more, many more small food businesses um, that serve communities that, you know, provide entrepreneurs with opportunities and which, you know, are fair and are part of a, a local community uh, economy and which are also, uh, needs to be said, very low carbon or zero carbon. Alberta, what about you? What's your food system utopia? <laughs> My food system utopia is, well, first uh, that food is not 
conceived as a commodity. So food must be considered as value, as a culture, as a right, uh, as a social relation. I come from Italy, so I, I have a really holistic vision around food. Um, I'm also very attentive to power dynamics, so I think that food system um, uh, structure, food, how, how we design food system must be uh, really uh, able to speak to how to restructure the power dynamic in society in order to um, achieve, I mean, more, more equity and more equality. And uh, if we apply this to agriculture, I mean, I completely share the vision of Moscow food producers and the food sovereignty movements when, when they say and they claim that the control on seeds, biodiversity, land, water, knowledge, commons are put in the hands of those who produce the food that, that I eat, that all of us eat and all the world eat. So I think that uh, I would like to see a small um, small depending on the context. I know that small in Europe means something, in the US means something different, but small, family-led, local, diversified uh, agri-food system uh, that have stronger connection with consumers and uh, where food is safe, healthy, fresh and accessible. So this is my utopia for the future of food system. Thank you both so much. podcast from Taskape Media, hosted by Alexandra George-Pico, who's also an assistant producer, and Theodore Simmons, who produces and edits the series. The production assistant is me, Beatrix Keeler. Alistair Simmons is our executive producer. Our thanks to all who've been involved in making the show possible.